In the fall of 1963, the big TV news was that three bona fide movie stars were going to host new weekly variety shows, Judy Garland, Jerry Lewis, and Danny Kaye. Neither Kaye nor Garland had ever hosted a TV show before, but their film careers were fading and TV seemed like a logical next step. Jerry Lewis was actually at the height of his popularity as a film comic. This was the same year he released The Nutty Professor. But he saw a regular TV series as his way of showing America his versatility. So, three different stars, three different shows. At the end of the season, only one of them would still be on the air. The other flamed out spectacularly, and the third, after being wrecked by network interference, started again from scratch and found itself in its final episodes. Along the way, there were ego clashes, blown-out budgets, behind-the-scenes drama, creative upheaval, flat-out sexism, and a final gesture of defiance centered around the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. Throughout most of the 1950s and 60s, one network genre maintained its popularity, the TV variety show. Today, the variety show is non-existent. On the rare occasions when the networks attempt one with a host like Neil Patrick Harris or Maya Rudolph and Martin Short, they disappear almost instantly. But in 1963, by contrast, there were variety shows on the air hosted by Jackie Gleason, Ed Sullivan, Andy Williams, Perry Como, Sid Caesar, Edie Adams, Gary Moore, Red Skelton, Jimmy Dean, and Jack Parr. That fall, they would be joined by arguably the biggest names ever to come to TV to that point, Judy Garland, Danny Kaye, and Jerry Lewis. The seeds for their new shows had actually been planted months before. For Garland, it began with a successful 1961 cross-country concert tour that climaxed with a legendary performance at Carnegie Hall. A recording of that concert won multiple Grammy Awards and was in Billboard's number one spot for 13 weeks. Garland was also back on movie screens. Her film appearances had been sporadic since A Star is Born seven years earlier, but in 1962 she played a dramatic role in Judgment at Nuremberg and was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. She also provided the voice for an animated film, Gay Paris. Also in 1962 came a CBS TV special with Garland, Frank Sinatra, and Dean Martin that was a critical and rating success, airing opposite the Western series Bonanza on NBC and beating it. Finally, there was a Garland appearance on the Jack Parr program in 1962, where she demonstrated a quick wit and the ability to tell a great story. <laughs> 
Hey, listen. Hey, t- hey, t- we, she has the greatest stories, and this is one of the great talkers in show business, but no one ever heard her talk. I mean, no one, no, professionally. Um, listen, tell them about the days at MGM. There's some of the stories about Mickey and Liz Taylor and those people. Just to tell the stories you want to. Well, uh, I hardly know where to start. Um, tell me what you said about Liz. Well... <laughs> It wasn't anything like no, that. No, no. Uh, uh, as you know, she's this, this marvelous sort of femme fatale. Yes. I can always just remember her as a, as a girl with a lot of chipmunks and horses. And she was only about three feet high and two years old at Metro. I can't imagine this marvelous sort of Cleopatra. She was, you know, that shows my age. Well, Liz has grown up. Yes, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I laugh. She says, Liz, she always thinks of Liz well, we with chipmunks. a strange group, you know. Well, you know, what was in that group? Well, it was a terrible classroom in the first place when you think of all of us in one group. But Elizabeth Taylor, <laughs> in the schoolroom, you know, we went to school. It was Elizabeth Taylor, and we did, believe it or not. And Lana Turner and Mickey Rooney, and Freddie Bartholomew, and me, and Deanna Durbin. That was one room? In one room, that was all there was. And, and, uh... We Lana, all turned out swell. <laughs> <laughs> what happened at Metro? What did they do? I don't... That was, uh... Were you kids scared? Were you scared? No, no. Not at all. <laughs> we were fine. Have you seen us since we've come out? We were a very peculiar group. <laughs> The seeds of the Jerry Lewis show were also planted in 1962. Jack Parr had stepped down as the host of The Tonight Show in the spring of that year, and the show's new host, Johnny Carson, was contractually obligated to stay with the game show he was hosting, Who Do You Trust?, until the fall. So all that summer, The Tonight Show had a series of guest hosts. The lineup included everyone from Groucho Marx to Arlene Francis, But one guest host, Jerry Lewis, stood out as much for what he didn't do as what he did. Audiences were used to seeing Lewis clown around in his movies, or romping across the stage on the Colgate Comedy Hour when he and Dean Martin were still a team. But they'd never seen him having an actual conversation with someone. It was a novelty at the time, and critics responded favorably. And Lewis liked the praise. Like Judy Garland, Danny Kaye's film career had begun to sputter as well. Earlier in 1963, what would be, for all practical purposes, his final feature film, The Man from the Diners Club, had been released to savage reviews. Kaye's career, and the man himself, seemed to be in a creative slump. Kaye had only a passing acquaintance with television. In 1956, the CBS news program See It Now presented an episode called The Secret Life of Danny Kay, which dealt with his experiences as an ambassador-at-large for the United Nations Children's Fund, or UNICEF. The show won a Peabody Award. Then came a few TV specials, including a 1962 show with Lucille Ball. By that point, Kay was ready to listen to an offer for a weekly series. In 1963, CBS TV was sitting pretty, It had nine of the top ten shows on TV, led by the Beverly Hillbillies in the top spot. The CBS executive in charge of programming was James Aubrey, a ruthless character nicknamed the Smiling Cobra. 
For more about Aubrey's rise and fall, you can check out our podcast on Aubrey's close friend, the mob-connected actor-producer Keith Brazell. Aubrey reached out to Danny Kaye because he had a very specific target in mind. Bonanza, the only NBC show in the top ten. Every Sunday night, most of America watched The Ed Sullivan Show on CBS and then turned the dial to NBC and the Cartwright family and its adventures out west. CBS needed a strong show to hold on to Ed Sullivan's large audience, and Aubrey wanted Danny Kaye to fill that slot. Kaye flatly refused. He knew that going against Bonanza was a no-win situation. No matter how well Kay's show did, if it couldn't beat Bonanza, then it wouldn't be good enough for CBS. An agreement was eventually reached on a Wednesday night time slot for Kay, against comparatively weak competition on NBC and ABC. Airing right before Kay's show would be the top ten shows, The Beverly Hillbillies and The Dick Van Dyke Show, offering a great lead-in. The only problem was that the time slot was 10 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time, so Kay wouldn't be able to reach the younger viewers who made up a significant part of his audience. But the deal was made. That still left a hole in Sunday nights opposite Bonanza, and James Aubrey remembered that Judy Garland's special with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin had beaten Bonanza in the ratings. So Aubrey went after Judy Garland. ABC and NBC also wanted her, but CBS won her with a $6 million package to do 32 original episodes. The expectation was that the contract would be renewed for as many as four years. The contract also gave Garland, but not the network, the power to end the show after the first 13 episodes. All three networks also pursued Jerry Lewis after his work on The Tonight Show. At least, he claimed they did but Lewis had several conditions on which he would not budge. His show would have to be totally, completely live. He also wanted not one hour each week, but two. And he wanted it to air on Saturday night, believing that it would be so popular that people would stay home to watch it instead of going out. Also, Lewis would have complete autonomy over the program and the power to veto advertisers, There would be no commercials for what Lewis deemed offensive products like mouthwash or deodorant. ABC was the only network that would accept Lewis's conditions and offered him a record payday, a five-year, $72 million contract for 40 shows a year. Lewis also got ABC to spend a million dollars, that's about eight million in today's money, to renovate a Hollywood theater where Lewis and Dean Martin had hosted many episodes of the Colgate Comedy Hour in the 1950s. He renamed it the Jerry Lewis Theater and had his profile embedded in the sidewalk outside. Inside would be installed all the latest technical equipment to give Lewis total control of the show in real time. Lewis's vision was simple. He wanted to do The Tonight Show in prime time with lots of provocative conversation. He boasted of putting a variety of guests together like Winston Churchill, Helen Keller, Jimmy Hoffa, maybe even Queen Elizabeth. I have this God-given gift, that's all it is really, of communicating with people, Lewis told TV Guide. Lewis's team of writers included a young man recruited from The Tonight Show named Dick Cavett. 
The executive producer of the show would be Ernest Glucksman, who worked with Lewis on the Colgate Comedy Hour. ABC executives were nervous because, aside from promising provocative conversation, Lewis was cagey with them about what else would be on the show. He told them to relax and trust him. Everything would be great. Meanwhile, there was a subtle competition going on between Judy Garland and Danny Kaye over at CBS's Television City, the network's superstructure of studios. The executive producer of the Kaye show, Perry Lafferty, had an elaborate dressing room built for Kay on the roof. Kay had a full Japanese kitchen installed where he could indulge his love of Asian cooking. Not to be outdone, the executive producer of Garland's show, George Slatter, had a fully decorated trailer placed atop a second-floor ramp. On the front door was a nameplate that said The Legend. Then he had a yellow brick road painted from the trailer to Studio 43, where Garland's show would be taped. Other CBS stars were a little miffed. Art Linkletter asked for a helicopter so he could arrive at the studio faster, but he didn't get it. Red Skelton dismissed it all, saying, I'll be here long after they're gone. George Slatter was the first of what would be three executive producers of the Judy Garland show. He would go on to executive produce Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In in the late 1960s, and real people in the late 1970s. Schlatter believed that his role was to keep Judy Garland happy on the set through flattery and jokes, and to be at her beck and call no matter what time of the day or night. He also saw Garland as an entertainment icon who should be presented as something special each week. CBS executives had a different view. Head programmer James Aubrey would make CBS the number one network through simple-minded shows like The Beverly Hillbillies, Gilligan's Island, and My Favorite Martian. He had a horror of programming that appeared to be too sophisticated, especially when it was going up against Bonanza the way Garland was. Aubrey did not like the idea of Garland the icon. His idea of a successful variety show host was the low-key comic Gary Moore, who had a weekly series with a family of regulars, including Durward Kirby, and a young Carol Burnett. Meanwhile, Danny Kaye had a model in mind for what his variety show should be, and it boiled down to two words, Sid Caesar. Caesar dominated the 1950s with Your Show of Shows and Caesar's Hour. He was surrounded by talented regulars like Carl Reiner, Imogene Coca, Nanette Fabre, and Howard Morris, and his writers included Larry Gelbart, Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, and Selma Diamond. Like Sid Caesar, Danny Kaye was a master of dialect comedy and physical shtick. And like Caesar, Kaye had his, um, moody side. As one co-worker told TV Guide, Danny is the greatest, or he is ice. Larry Gelbart joined the Danny Kay show long enough to write the pilot episode and set the show's creative direction. Imogene Coca and Howard Morris were frequent guests on the show, and the writing staff included Caesar veterans Mel Tolkien and Sheldon Keller, as well as a young Paul Mazursky, who would go on to write and direct films like An Unmarried Woman and Down and Out in Beverly Hills, and his partner at the time, Larry Tucker. 
Kay also made CBS executives happy by choosing his own family of regulars, including Harvey Korman and Joyce Van Patten. And he happily welcomed other CBS stars as guests on his show, like Mary Tyler Moore and Buddy Ebsen of the Beverly Hillbillies. So maybe it was because of his talented staff, or maybe because he played along with the rules, or maybe it was because of his easy time slot, or maybe it was just because he was a man who might fight back. Whatever the reason, Danny Kaye was largely left alone to create his program, while Judy Garland was subjected to second-guessing almost every step of the way. But Garland had her reasons for doing what she was told, One was that she was making a lot of money, and she needed a lot of money to settle some tax issues. Another was that she was tired of touring, and staying in Hollywood to do the show meant stability for her children Lorna and Joe. Instead of spending the summer thinking about what the Jerry Lewis show would be, Lewis toured the country promoting The Nutty Professor. Meanwhile, work was proceeding on the Jerry Lewis Theater, which had been completely gutted and rebuilt. There were 800 new seats upholstered with gold fabric and a gold curtain. The auditorium contained 350 speakers, and wireless communication was installed to link the walnut-paneled control room and the stage. The desk where Lewis would sit had a control panel that allowed him to override the director and choose his own camera shots. A large screen above the stage would show the program on closed circuit so the audience in the back rows could see everything. In other words, the potential for technical difficulties was enormous. Both Garland and Kay began taping their shows during the summer. The guests on Kay's premiere episode were singer-comic Love Lady Powell, actor-director Jackie Cooper, folk singers Joe and Eddie, and the members of two Little League teams who appeared in a production number. For her first guest, Judy Garland welcomed her longtime MGM co-star and dear friend, Mickey Rooney. They were working with each other for the first time in 15 years, and the lineup included an unscripted segment where the two of them just sat together, watched clips from their films, and commented on them. The show was taped on June 24th, and everyone was thrilled with the result. Garland and her staff planned for it to be the show's first episode but that wouldn't be the case. Meanwhile, there were other mandates from CBS. They wanted Garland to close her first show with Over the Rainbow. She refused. Then it was suggested that the song be incorporated into a comedy bit, and Garland, who had a great sense of humor about herself, drew the line. That song was sacred to her, she said. She might sing it in another episode, but it was too soon right now. CBS had another problem. They thought Garland touched her guests too much. Garland tried to explain that that was just her style on stage to hold someone's hand or arm. But she made an effort to stop. But she found that the guests liked it so much that they started touching her. Lou Brown and his orchestra, and my name is Del Moore. This portion... The first episode of The Jerry Lewis Show premiered on September 21, 1963. 
work on the Jerry Lewis Theater continued up until just minutes before the live debut. The crew of 170 people, all in tuxedos, per Lewis's order, moved frantically around on stage, backstage, and under the stage. The theater was filled with celebrities, and anyone who couldn't get in was treated by Lewis to a separate reception at the Beverly Hilton Hotel with a sit-down dinner and a closed-circuit broadcast, which cost Lewis more than $40,000. Dick Cavett had created an opening bit for the show where Lewis, dressed in a tux and ready to enter the theater, found himself locked out. Everyone loved the idea, but Lewis spontaneously decided to scrap it and instead just enter singing When You're Smiling. The people down front could see, but the giant monitor above Lewis, designed to beam an image to the entire theater, was dark. The communication link between the control room and the stage wasn't working. The red lights were out on the cameras, so performers didn't know which one to play to. Lewis dealt with everything as best he could. We were giving, he gave you the note. Didn't Terry give you the note? Well, you better give it to him. Now the Stone Age vocalist steps forward. Uh, can you people see all right upstairs? Any better? I wish I could help it. I really do. Uh, my neighbor's button isn't working as well as I'd like it to. Uh, we, we, we will try to get as much of the action so that you people up in the top on the shelf will see. That's the beauty of this medium, you see. We are on the air live, and this telecast is going to all parts of the world. And I should literally say it can because of Telstar, but in this instance, we're going to all parts of the United States, 60, 70 million people possibly. Isn't it amazing? The engineering is such a fantastic miracle, and yet they couldn't work from this camera to this lousy screen. Seeing Lewis in this sort of format might have seemed novel at the time. But if you followed Lewis's career at all and you watch these clips, one thing immediately occurs to you. This is Telethon Jerry. This is the Jerry Lewis you would see every Labor Day weekend raising money for muscular dystrophy. Clown one minute, sing the other, upstage your guests, and then turn surly when the money isn't coming in fast enough. Then you go through the whole cycle again. Lewis was at least realistic. He knew his opening show was a disaster. Because of viewer curiosity, it actually did pretty well in the ratings, but it helped a lot that the competition on CBS, the popular shows Have Gun, Will Travel, and Gunsmoke, were still in reruns. Looking back, Lewis would say of the first show, I didn't get sparked. I need sparking. To a friend who expressed sympathy, Lewis chose self-pity. Don't look so sad. I'm the one who has to crawl over in the corner and die. Yeah. 
Just a little over a week after Lewis's first show, the Judy Garland show premiered with Donald O'Connor as opening guest, not Mickey Rooney. The Rooney show wouldn't air until December 8th as the show's 10th. That's because the man who had produced that show, George Slatter, wasn't around anymore. After five episodes were in the can, Garland's executive producer, George Schlatter, and the writing staff had been fired by Hunt Stromberg Jr., one of James Aubrey's deputies. Norman Jewison replaced Schlatter. He was friendly to Garland, but he kept her at arm's length, and he advised the show's new writers to do the same. The opening show had been produced by Jewison, and in its review, the New York Times smelled a rat. What should never happen to Judy Garland did last evening. The busybodies got so in the way that the singer never had a chance to sing out as only she can. To call the hour a grievous disappointment would be to miss the point. It was an absolute mystery. Other reviews were more enthusiastic, and subsequent episodes would have their memorable moments, including on the second episode where the guest was a young Barbara Streisand. She and Garland teamed to each sing their signature song. So absolutely thrilling. <laughs> I must say that we've got all your albums at home, you know. And you're so good that I I hate you. <laughs> I really hate you. You're so good. Oh, Judy, that's that's so sweet of you. Thank you, you know. You're so great that I've been hating you for years. <laughs> In fact, it's my ambition to be great enough to be hated by as many singers as you. Oh, well, that's, that's a nice thing for you to say. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Say more. Say more. Oh. <laughs> I love you. I love you, too. But, but don't stop hating me. I need the confidence. No, no, no. <laughs> and if you ever get a little, you know, a feeling of lack of security, call me on the phone and sing a couple of notes to me, and I'll give you hatred like you've never gotten. It's <laughs> good. See, I love you, pussycat. I, uh, I think that makes me happy. Let's try it. your trouble happy days come on get happy i hear again the skies all our cares above are clear shout hallelujah so let's sing a song come on get happy cheer again happy days are here
Danny Kay show was also finding its stride. There had been skeptics, people who said that Kay was a notorious perfectionist who couldn't handle the weekly grind of turning out a TV show. But in interviews, Kay tried to be as positive about the time pressures as possible. He told TV Guide, You just don't have time to work that long on a television show. But because we can't hone and polish, we sometimes get a kind of jagged brilliance by the very virtue of imperfection. My friends thought the show would be terribly confining and damaging to me. Instead, it's produced the most stimulation and creativity I've had for the last seven years. Because of his work with UNICEF, Kay was in a unique position to feature dancers and singers from all over the world and sing duets with them or interpret their words as a way of introducing them to Americans. Here he is with French singer Marais Mathieu. Don't wear tin underwear in an electrical storm. <laughs> Make sure your dentist doesn't fill your throat. <laughs> Broken promises do not feed the Admiral's pussy cat. <laughs> if it weren't for Ohio and Illinois, Indiana would cave in. <laughs> Where do I go to get my ears pierced? <laughs> Always dry your feet before kicking a harp. <laughs> early to bed and early to rise and you miss everything. <laughs> Never let a zebra into a prison dance. <laughs> He also featured children as often as possible, including young ballet dancers Lori Achino and Victoria Meyerink. A quiet dialogue or a duet with one of them was practically a weekly staple. The initial ratings for The Judy Garland Show and The Danny Kay Show were actually pretty close. Kay was getting a 17 share and Garland was getting a 14 share. The only difference, of course, was that Kay was holding his own with the competition and Garland was being stomped by the Cartwrights. Still, ironically, Garland was getting a higher rating than the CBS show she had replaced in that time slot. But there was a striking difference in the CBS Sunday night lineup of My Favorite Martian, The Ed Sullivan Show, 
The Judy Garland Show, and Candid Camera. Three of those shows were in the top ten. Garland was much lower. Once it became clear that Bonanza was as strong as ever, CBS programmer James Aubrey quickly lost interest in The Judy Garland Show. Maybe it was a point of pride. Bonanza was the only show keeping CBS from dominating the top ten. Or, and here's the reason I lean toward, maybe he was just an amoral, power-hungry, sexist ass. Whatever the reason, he and his deputy, Hunt Stromberg Jr., kept shaking up the creative staff. Executive producer Norman Jewison also left after five episodes and was replaced by Bill Colloran. Let's go back to Hunt Stromberg Jr. for a moment. He had some idiosyncrasies of his own, including a pet monkey. After he left the show, Garland's former executive producer, George Schlatter, ran into Stromberg at a cocktail party. Stromberg confided that he was having problems with his monkey, and Schlatter shot back, Why don't you just fire it? Judy Garland's new executive producer, Bill Colloran, was an unabashed fan. As soon as he met Garland, he told her the story of riding a bicycle through a Minnesota blizzard just so he could catch a glimpse of Garland's train making a brief stop at a nearby station in 1938. She cried, he cried, and an alliance was born. Around the same time, backstage after Jerry Lewis's sixth show, someone asked Lewis if he needed anything. I need, he said, to get off this show. The ratings hadn't improved, and critics were mercilessly attacking Lewis each week. Cleveland Amory wrote in TV Guide, The show runs two mortal hours, and the very idea of five years of them, as presently constituted, is an appalling thought. ABC wasn't any more anxious to keep the show on the air than Lewis was, and on November 19th, Lewis formally requested his release. It was agreed that the 13th episode of The Jerry Lewis Show would be its last. November 19th was a Tuesday. That same day in Washington, Presidential Press Secretary Pierre Salinger opened a letter from a woman who lived in Dallas. It said, Don't let the president come down here. I'm worried about him. I think something terrible will happen. But Kennedy was still planning to be in Dallas that Friday, November 22nd. A few days after President Kennedy's assassination, and after a weekend dominated by coverage of funeral proceedings and the murder of alleged assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, the word went out from CBS Brass, there will be no mention or remembrance of John F. Kennedy on any of our shows. Judy Garland was devastated by Kennedy's death. She'd campaigned actively for him and visited him in the White House. They talked on the phone frequently, the calls usually ending with Kennedy requesting that Garland sing something to him. Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli, remembered one instance. One day, I was walking to the living room, and there's my mother on the phone singing the battle hymn of the Republic. I thought, what is she doing? After Mama hung up, she told me that she was talking to President Kennedy and that he wanted her to sing that. It was only the two of them. It was real friendship. Garland took some time off after Kennedy's death, and she became determined that, network ruling or not, 
she was going to figure out a way to pay tribute to her friend. In December, The Judy Garland Show was in 66th place among 80 programs. CBS had already announced that Danny Kaye's show would be renewed for a second season, but Garland's hopes were not high for her show's chances. On December 21, 1963, the 13th and final episode of The Jerry Lewis Show aired. Lewis invited back one of his most memorable guests, Sammy Davis Jr., but aside from Davis's performance, the show was like an Irish wake without the booze, or humor, or Irish people. Uh, there's been an awful lot of talk about our last show and what's he going to say and what's he going to do, and the network naturally is somewhat concerned. And I would like you to say it very plainly. There are rules and regulations. Some of the regulations and some of the rules I did not adhere to. If this was wrong, I apologize. I would like to mention that uh, being a nonconformist, very often I will do the things that I believe and that I am principled about. And I think that I would do them again. But as far as the ABC network is concerned, the sponsors, the affiliates and everyone else, they are running a business. They are right, but so am I. I would like for you... Let me just, let me say, based on the standards under which they function, they are right. Based on the standards under which I feel I must function, I am right. Uh, when we come to a matter of deciding, it isn't really all important as to who is right and who is wrong. The important thing is that you've got to play the game the way it's to be played. Now, whether I will do that or not, I don't know. Whether I ever have, I don't think I have. Whether I ever will, I don't know that I will. I can only say this, that I have tried my very best and I have tried desperately to do the best I possibly can under the circumstances which prevail. And of course, uh, sour grapes always come into it. There aren't any sour grapes. If I did exactly as people thought I should, it would have been fine. I don't like to do like I'm supposed to. So if you don't do like you're supposed to, Let me just say, let me just say there is a very, very lovely expression that my very dear friend and my manager, Mr. Glucksman, taught me. It's a Hebrew expression and it says, Gamza Latova. That means from all bad comes good. Whatever good comes from this, I have learned. Until I see you, may I borrow an expression from General MacArthur, I shall return. Good night. Thank you. At CBS Television City, Garland and Bill Colloran were putting their heads together. It was decided that Garland would sing the Battle Hymn of the Republic on the January 12th show, but they accidentally on purpose left the song off the rundown they sent to CBS. Garland did two takes of the song, prefacing one by saying, This is for you, Jack. You know, one of the greatest songs that was ever written is very seldom done on television and I would like to I'd like to sing that song for you tonight mine eyes have seen the glory 
of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, CBS schedule for 1964-65 was released. Judy Garland wasn't on it. James Aubrey didn't even consider moving the show to a more hospitable time slot or even of signing Garland to a series of specials. So on January 22nd, Garland pulled the trigger herself by sending a letter to Aubrey and telling him that she wanted to step away from the show to spend more time with her family. Aubrey's response for public consumption was gracious and appreciative. There were still shows to produce, and again, Colleran and Garland put their heads together and decided they'd go out with a bang, with a series of mini-concerts, all music, mostly just Judy Garland. Critics and some viewers rallied to Garland's defense, but it didn't matter. Garland finished her 26th episode and walked down the yellow brick road to her trailer, where she found an orchid plant from Hunt Stromberg, Jr. You were just great, a note said. Thanks a lot. You're through. Critic Terence O'Flaherty placed the blame where it belonged. Tomorrow night, Judy Garland's vacancy is filled by two half-hour game shows. I hope those who so bitterly attacked Miss Garland will be happy with the new shows, as well as the critics who called her series a flop, and particularly James Aubrey, who gave her a false facade and mercilessly pitted her against Bonanza, the greatest audience attraction on television. The show wasn't a flop. It just happened to be up against the stiffest competition on TV. It's far easier to fly over the rainbow than to beat a good horse opera. The fact that Judy Garland attempted it provided some of the high spots of the season. For the 1964-65 season, the Judy Garland show was replaced by two sitcoms, The Joey Bishop Show and My Living Doll, a sitcom about a shapely female robot played by Julie Newmar, a James Aubrey special if ever there was one. Both shows were quickly canceled. The Danny Kay Show won three Emmy Awards in 1964, including one for the show itself and one for Danny Kay. The show also won a Peabody Award. It was never a rating success, but it held its own against the competition, and there were no shortage of sponsors who wanted to be associated with Kay. The show ran four seasons until the spring of 1967. Jerry Lewis went back to his movies his personal appearances, his home in Bel Air, 
and his 47-foot yacht, the Pussycat. His settlement with ABC was reported to be somewhere between $750,000 and $4 million. The Jerry Lewis Theater became the home of the Hollywood Palace, a more conventional variety show that would run on ABC in the same time slot for six years. And in 1968, Lewis himself would return to TV in a more conventional NBC variety series that ran two seasons. The Judy Garland show was Garland's last sustained body of work, but she kept busy for the rest of the 1960s with TV and concert appearances. Her public image, especially after the show's cancellation, was that of a waif-like, fragile performer who barely made it through her final years. Liza Minnelli, however, begs to differ with that stereotype. I'd ask her, why do people keep talking about you like you're this little bird who's dying or something? She could sing over the rainbow, and as people were screaming and crying, I'd rush up to her in the blackout when she finished, thinking, oh my god, she's a wreck, and she'd look at me and say, you want Chinese food tonight? People don't want to hear that, but that, in fact, is the truth. She understood that her vulnerability in performance was something we all recognize in ourselves. She knew how to portray somebody in pain very well. She understood it deeply enough to be able to portray it. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is produced, written, and edited and narrated by me, David Inman. Thanks for listening. Please consider subscribing to us on iTunes and also... I would really appreciate it if you could give a rating to the show. That helps people find us more easily. Liza Minnelli was voiced by my daughter, Nora. Thanks for listening. See you later.